Well, what is the Christian life all about? What lifestyle should characterize those who follow Jesus? When non-Christians observe Christians, what should they see with their eyes or hear with their ears? When Jesus says that we are to shine our light so that those would see our light, what kind of light should we be shining? Well, throughout the ages, Christians have answered these questions in a variety of ways, and some of those answers have been complementary, and some of those answers have been contradictory. There have been those who have said that the true Christian life is all about asceticism and living away from the world, fleeing anything that could be construed as delightful or pleasurable, owning nothing, eating little, reading and studying scripture, praying much, and all that goes with that kind of life. There have been those who have said that the true Christian life is all about enjoying life in this world that God has created, taking advantage of all of the pleasures and delights available to us, certainly in moderation, but not without impinging our enjoyment. There have been those who have said that the true Christian life is all about establishing the rule of Christianity in the world, uh, promoting God's law, converting unbelievers by any means necessary, political activism, social activism, education, even military conquest. There have been those who have said that the true Christian life is all about social justice, helping the poor, caring for the sick, obtaining justice for the oppressed, serving the marginalized. There have been those who have said that the true Christian life is all about not being worldly. And by that, they mean uh, abiding by a a code of conduct, uh, keeping your nose clean, not drinking, not dancing, not playing cards, not watching movies or at least movies of a certain rating. Uh, Women shouldn't wear pants and men should wear suits. Uh, You shouldn't associate with people who associate with people who sin. The Christian life is all about adhering to a set of standards that will keep you holy, they say. And then there are many people who have said that, well, actually they haven't said anything because they haven't really thought about what the true Christian life is all about. There are many Christians who have made some kind of profession of faith uh, or who claim to be a Christian for some reason or another, and they've given very little uh, thought of the impact that that profession of faith, that claim to be a Christian, should have on their life. Now, obviously, they know that there are some things Christians shouldn't do, but those are the same kinds of things that unbelievers don't think they should do. You know, things like murder and steal and whatnot. Years ago, I was counseling, doing premarital counseling for a couple, and they professed to be Christians, and they went so far in one session to say that Jesus was central in their life. Well, as a pastor, I mean, that's wonderful to hear, right? But as I asked to discern, okay, what does that actually look like? I came to discover they didn't know the gospel at all. They not only didn't read their Bible, they didn't have a Bible. Uh, They didn't go to church. They certainly weren't living for Jesus because they were actually living together in fornication. Now, they were nice people. They had great personalities. They were very kind and generous with others. They were the kind of people that you and I would love to have as neighbors. But they thought they could be Christians without having any impact on their life. 
Tragically, when you read surveys of American Christianity, you find that that couple basically represents a good majority of Christians in America. And in reality, they're not all that different from Christians who do have Bibles and who do go to church, even churches like ours. As one who does a lot of counseling, I can tell you that many, not all by any stretch, but many counseling situations exist because a person who claims to be a Christian lives as though they can have Christ, claim Christ, but also have habitual sin in their life. There are some of you right here or listening right now who have convinced yourself that you can claim to be a Christian and indulge in pornography regularly without concern. There are some of you who have convinced yourself that you can claim to be a Christian and engage in sexual immorality of various kinds, fornication or adultery. There are some of you who have convinced yourself that you can claim to be a Christian and mistreat your wife or your children verbally, emotionally, even physically or in other ways. There are some of you who have convinced yourself that you can claim to be a Christian and be addicted to drugs and alcohol. Some of you have convinced yourself that you can claim to be a Christian and have a filthy mouth at home or at school or at work. Some of you are suffering secretly because you're married or there's someone in your home who claims and looks like a saint at church and everybody loves them, but they're a devil at home. You're suffering in silence because you're either afraid of how that person will respond if you seek help or you're just too ashamed to talk to someone about it. You might even think every marriage or every home is like this. Some of you feel trapped by the sin in your life that you know is wrong, but you've gone so far down that rabbit hole in your life that you just don't know how to get out and you're embarrassed to talk to someone about it. My beloved church, these things should not be. It should not be that Christians live in habitual sin thinking there is no impact on their soul. It should not be that Christians suffer in secret at the hands of others because they don't know how to get help. It should not be that Christians feel stuck in their sin and don't know how to get free from it. It should not be that we have different and contradictory views of the Christian life. It should not be that we are confused about what the Christian life is all about because the Bible is very clear on the subject. And that is what our text is about today. As we return to our study in Titus, I would invite you to turn to Titus chapter 2, as obviously you've seen on the screen. The text for today is Titus 2.12. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was thinking I'll preach Titus 2, 12, 13, and 14. And then as I thought about it, I'm like, well, maybe just 12 and 13. And then as I was preparing my sermon, it was like, well, maybe just 12. And yesterday, you'll be proud of me. I was thinking, well, maybe just half of 12. But I decided, no, I'll go the full way. Now, if you're visiting with us or you weren't here, I preached verse 11 uh, the Sunday before Christmas, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because that really is the foundation 
that's the beginning of the sentence, first of all, but it's the foundation of what we're going to talk about today and in the remaining messages as we walk through Titus in the coming uh, weeks. This text gives us one of the uh, gives us an opportunity to examine our lives, not just in terms of the sin in our life, but how we think about life and what we live for. And it's my desire to be imminently practical in these messages. Obviously, I can't speak to the details of every life, but it is my aim to preach in such a way that you can apply these truths to your own life, that you can take these truths home with you and live them out day to day. Verses 12 to 14 reveal to us the three primary components of the Christian life. Three aspects that define what it means to live as a Christian. Verse 12 teaches us about the Christian life in terms of standards for living. Verse 13 teaches us, or, uh, teaches us the Christian hope in terms of the future orientation of the Christian life. And verse 14 teaches us the Christian purpose in terms of what role Christians should play in the world. So the Christian life in verse 12, the Christian hope in verse 13, and the Christian purpose in verse 14. That gives you a preview of the upcoming messages. But today we will consider verse 12 and the Christian life. Look at your Bible and follow along as I read. I'm going to read the whole sentence down to verse 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." We see here in verse 12 that the Christian life is a lifestyle defined by what it rejects and what it embraces. Christians should be known for how they live and also for how they don't live. If, if you're a Christian, you should consider your own lifestyle. Uh, the movies you watch, the books you read, the games you play, the hobbies you enjoy, the social media you consume. You should consider your relationships and friendships, the people you hang around with and find affinity with, the groups you join yourself to, the activities you participate in, the, the way you date and pursue relationships, the way you spend your time and money, the way you talk, the way you fill your eyes, uh, what you fill your eyes with on the internet, what you listen to, how you go about getting help for your problems, how you respond to world events, and on and on we could go. When you and I became a Christian, we may not have realized it at the time, but every area of our life needed to be considered under the, the light of the grace of God. And as you continue to live as a Christian, every area of your life needs to be evaluated through the lens of God's grace. The Christian life is not a passive, thoughtless life. It's not a life that can be set on cruise control. The world, the flesh, and the devil are dead set against you living for Christ. So we need to be vigilant in how we live. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians uh, 6, as Pastor Rodney preached last week, that after 
describing the Christian life, he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, that you will be able to stand firm. If you thought the war in Afghanistan and Iraq was too long, we are in a lifelong battle, spiritual battle, against the adversary, the devil, and all the forces of darkness at his disposal. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In his letter to the Christians who were scattered all throughout Asia, Peter wrote, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. In addition to the Christian being in in a spiritual battle at all times, the Christian is also at war with his own flesh. Having lived in the flesh the entirety of our unbelieving life and still having the weakened flesh attached to us that is active, we are constantly at war with ourselves. So Paul says in Romans 6, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And and don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So there's this repeated theme throughout the New Testament that the believer ought to be battling against temptation and sin in their life, whether it's coming from the outside or whether it's rising up from within. Now, as you look at chapter 2, verse 12 of Titus, depending on your translation, the verb there is translated either instructing or teaching or training. Uh, the word in the Greek is not the word that primarily refers to didactic teaching as, this, as if the grace of God is standing up behind a lectern uh, explaining information to us. Instead, the word refers to someone who is teaching a skill through personal engagement with a student. There are words communicated, of course, but there's also an example that's set forth to follow and feedback given as the student practices. The grace of God is not a taskmaster with a whip, nor a scowling schoolmaster with a paddle. The grace of God is more like a coach who has your success in mind. But unlike most coaches who are better coaches than players, the grace of God, who is the person of Jesus Christ, as we saw in verse 11, the grace of God has accomplished complete victory. He has lived if you will, the Christian life. He is Christ. It's his life. He's lived it perfectly. And now he appeals to us and he instructs us and he guides us and encourages us and strengthens us in our living of the Christian life. It's critically important to realize that when the Bible reflects on how the Christian should respond to all that God has done for us in Christ, how we should respond to our salvation, 
the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles first and foremost to write about the personal character and conduct and standards of the Christian. Before we see how Paul describes that here in verse 12, consider how he says that in Romans 12, which Karen mentioned earlier. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, in light of the whole gospel of chapters 1 through 11, in light of the, the sinfulness of man and the endless mercy and grace and forgiveness of God, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And what is the will of God that one is to be conformed to? Well, Paul spends the next several chapters there at the end of Romans to describe what God's will is for the daily life and relationships of Christians. Or consider chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, where Paul says, Therefore, again, in light of all that I've written about what Christ has done for you and who you are in Christ, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, consistent with the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The life of one who has been redeemed by God called by God, forgiven by God, should reflect that character of God in an increasing way. Or finally, consider Colossians 3, 1 through 3, where Paul again writes, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. One who has been elevated from an earthbound existence should not think as though this earthly life is all there is. We should live with our minds considering heavenly and eternal realities. So time and time again, what God wants you to know is that the pouring out of His love and His grace on you, which you and I did not deserve, but is solely out of the riches of His kindness, His saving work in your life is meant to bring about a transformation. It is true, as is often said, that God loves us just the way we are. That we don't have to clean up our lives before we come to God, because we can't. But it's also true that when God pours out our love for us, it is for the purpose of not leaving us the way that we are. It's for the purpose of transforming us. Now, with that in mind, let's consider what Paul says a Christian ought to deny and, de and renounce in light of the grace of God. Look again at the text and see that Paul says the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Uh, to deny or renounce, as it says in the ESV, simply means to reject to repudiate. It's to treat ungodliness and worldly desires with disdain and turn away from them. It's really a strong word that's used of the Jewish leaders who disowned Christ and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. To deny someone or something is to say, I want nothing to do with you. That is what we are to do when faced with the temptations of ungodliness and worldly desires. 
Some of you have testimonies that when you came to faith in Christ, you realized right away that there were things in your life, maybe even people in your life that you needed to discard because they were displeasing to the Lord. More than one of you, I've heard testify that you came to faith in Christ and you realized, I am in a sinful relationship with my girlfriend, and you cut that off, as difficult as that may have been. Some of you cut off drinking or drugs. Others of you have realized you needed to change your vocabulary and you stopped cussing. We always praise the Lord when a sinner comes to Christ and uh, they don't just believe in Christ, but like the, the prodigal son, they kind of look at their life and they're like, what am I doing? This is filthy. And they reject that and they run to the Father. And they receive Christ's forgiveness. And they dramatically change because, uh, and they become a whole new person such that their friends and their family no longer recognize them. And they say, Who are you? You're not doing what you used to do. You don't hang out with us in the things we used to do. Now, as much as we love to hear those testimonies, the truth is that that's not most of our testimonies. But even if it is, in the course of time, it's not unusual that old sins or new sins come into our lives and we struggle. For some, pre conversion sins remain in a person's life for decades. Pornography is one of those sins. I've counseled many people from their 20s to their 60s, and it's pretty consistent that it's at the age of 10 that people are exposed to pornography for the first time, and it wraps its tentacles around them, and it hangs on for decades. It might be that way with you, even though no one knows about it. For some, it might be some other sin that has persisted in your life from before you came to Christ. One of the reasons that sin might remain in your life, whatever the sin is for you, is because whether or not you've sought help, you've not been able to change. You feel like you've failed time and time again to change. And so eventually you just gave up and came to the conclusion This is just how life is going to be for the rest of my days. And now your conscience is seared. Friends, if that's you, God is telling you through his word right here, right now, you can denounce, you can renounce, you can deny ungodliness and worldly desires. You need to decide in your heart that however powerful a grip that sin has in your life, you are not enslaved to it because you are under the grace of God. And with the help of the Spirit of God, with the truth of the Word of God, and with the ministry of the people of God, you can deny that ungodliness and worldly desire. These two things that Paul mentions that we who have received the grace of God should deny, are terms that summarize the full scope of anything that conflicts with God's character and the standards given by God to those who are made in His image. Paul uses throughout his writing various terms to describe the conduct of unbelievers among whom we once were. You can look down at chapter 3. Verse 3, where he says, For we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, 
enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. In Romans 1.18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Referring again to unbelievers, Paul writes in Ephesians 2.3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Jude, who was one of the half-brothers of our Lord, wrote in his epistle, Behold, the Lord will come with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ungodliness is living contrary to the excellence of God's character in whose image you you were made and into whose image you are being transformed. Worldly desires are craving after things of this world which are empty and temporary, but which you believe will satisfy you. The Apostle John writes in his first letter, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust of the flesh is the compulsion toward bodily appetites and cravings. The lust of the eyes is is craving and coveting things that don't belong to you. And the pride of life is making yourself out to be better than others because of what you have or what you've accomplished. Those are the things that the world strives after. By embracing evolution, the world says that it is only right to satisfy every longing and desire you feel in your body. By embracing materialism, the world says that if you only had the newest, the most beautiful, the most advanced, you would be happy. By embracing humanism, the world says that you need to strive to be better than or at least look better than those around you. But the scripture says in Colossians 3, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why? Why should we do that? Well, he goes on, For it is because of these very things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer who you once were. You are no longer enslaved to debased passions. You are no longer bound to destructive desires. Your life is no longer bound to this world. You can deny ungodliness, however difficult it may seem. Now, how exactly does the grace of God instruct us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Here's how. The grace of God, which again is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, modeled denying ungodliness and worldly desires. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 17 to 21 or so. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk, 
in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Listen. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, believers have been taught by Jesus not to live ungodly, not to indulge in worldly desires. Now, if you don't remember when Jesus said this or taught this, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And we'll consider here just one example of when Jesus taught this by his example. In Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus being baptized by John, which is him exemplifying godliness as he submitted to the charge uh, of God's prophet, preached to God's people. And then at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, we learn that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness specifically to be tempted by the devil. And in that wilderness, he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, no doubt spending his time praying and preparing himself for the three years of ministry, which would result in his death. But after 40 days of fasting, it says at the end of verse 2 that he became hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been hungry long before those 40 days were over. But it says he became hungry. And so the devil came to him and said this in verse 3. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. The devil was playing off the desires of the flesh that Jesus had. Now, his body craved food, and that's not a sinful desire. Most bodily cravings are not inherently sinful. They're there because God put them there. They only become sinful, and this is critically important, they only become sinful when satisfied in ways that God doesn't intend for them to be satisfied. And so Jesus denies the lust of the flesh, if you will, the desires of the flesh, by saying in verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Though Jesus could have used his power to create a feast for himself out of the stones and frankly out of the air, he affirms that even though his body craved food, it is better to be in a state of hunger than to satisfy that desire in a way that violated God's purposes. Because that would have been a misuse of his power. That would have been using his power for selfish purposes. So listen, cravings are not needs. Cravings don't need to be satisfied. If a craving cannot be fulfilled in a God-honoring way, then it should not be fulfilled at all. Well, we have the next temptation, verses 5 to 6. The devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
Now, it may be a little bit of a stretch, I admit, but you can make the argument that the devil is tempting Jesus with the lust of the eyes in the sense that it's a desire to experience something that would be exhilarating. I mean, can you imagine falling to your death only to be swept up at the last second by angels? That would be pretty exciting. That would be a delightful experience. Some of you might disagree, but that would be pretty exciting for some. But Jesus responds in verse 7, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, the world embraces YOLO and FOMO, right? You only live once, if you haven't heard that. I guess maybe I'm cooler than some of you. You only live once or the fear of missing out. And they embrace that as a banner and to promote activities that are dangerous and maybe even foolish. Things that you wouldn't do normally in your right mind, but you would do because it's exciting, because it's fun, because you have to do this. If you haven't done this, you haven't lived. But that way of thinking only makes sense if you believe that this life is all there is and that you won't live forever in eternal glory. Well, the final temptation is a temptation of the pride of life. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. The devil tempts Jesus with an easy way out. Jesus, you can accomplish what you want to accomplish, namely having the world worship you. But you don't have to suffer. You don't have to go through the rejection of your people. Just bow down and worship me now, and I'll give you all of these people to worship you. Under me, of course, but they'll still worship you. Well, to that temptation, Jesus says, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knew that the world wasn't the devil's to give. And worshiping God is more important than being worshipped by billions. Sometimes we're tempted to do things because it will gain us fame, notoriety, popularity. And we're tempted to not worship God, to do things that are ungodly. And Jesus says, no, worshiping God is more important This is just one moment in the life of Jesus where he, the grace of God, instructs us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. Now, there's no doubt that worldly desires are powerful. Ungodliness is rampant. It seems so common and normal. But we learn from the life of Jesus to reject sin and temptation. Each one of us struggle with sin of various kinds and in various degrees. We might struggle with anger or pride or jealousy or lust or greed. These are sins of the heart. We might act out those sins of the heart by rebelling against our parents or the authorities or yelling or cursing or giving the silent treatment or mocking. We might even act out violently by throwing things or hurting others. We might put other people down to lift ourselves up. We might indulge in pornography or other forms of sexual sin. Whatever it is in your life that you know is not honoring to God, you know it's ungodly and a worldly desire or passion, whatever it is, you are not enslaved to that sin. 
you do not have to continue in that sin by the grace of God. That sin does not have ultimate power over you. God does. By the grace of God, you and I can denounce and deny sin. And not only can we, but we must. This is the very purpose for which Christ died. If we don't deny ungodliness and worldly desires, what we're doing is we're denying Christ. This is serious, folks. This is not a suggestion. This is not, here's tips on how you can live a happier life. It is imperative that the people of God turn from their sin and toward God. Now, I know I'm laying it on heavy but it's because there is too much softness on sin in the world and in the church. Too many women have been told to just be patient with your husband's sin. Too many men and women have been given a free pass to sin because their spouse has been blamed more as the greater sinner. Too many of us think too lightly about sin in our lives. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. It destroys lives and families. And it brings reproach on the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as it says in verse 14 of Titus 2, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Or as it says in 1 Peter 2.24, that he, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, if you're feeling the, con- the weight of conviction, you might be wondering, is there, is there good news? Yes, there's great news. If you've been paying close attention, I've been using the word grace over and over and over. If you have put your faith in Christ, the promise of 1 John 1.9 applies to you. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ bore your sins on the cross and having been nailed there, it is paid in full and your guilt is taken away. And the Lord says, come now, let's reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, they are now white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, They are like wool. Full forgiveness is available to all who would confess and repent. Well, having denied and renounced sin, we can move on to what the Christian should be known for. Having put off our ungodliness, we can put on godliness. Look again at verse 12, where he says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. When I preached on verse 6, where young men are told to be sensible, we spent an extended time explaining what that means. I would remind you that it means to control your mind so as to live, excuse me, so as to think about the world with humility. To control your mind so as to think about the world with humility. Living ungodly is letting your mind go wherever your flesh and your impulses take it. Living according to worldly desires is allowing your feelings and desires shape how you think about yourself and others. But in denying those things, 
We need to renew the mind, as it says in Ephesians 4.23 and Romans 12.2. We need to allow the Word of God to replace our beliefs and convictions and priorities and desires with the things of God. And that means we need to be taking in God's Word regularly. We need to cultivate the mind of Christ so that our view and attitudes are shaped by God and not the world. Just as it is physically impossible to grow or to have a healthy physical body with limited intake of food, so it is spiritually impossible to live and grow as a Christian without a regular diet of God's Word. Now that engagement can take many forms. We are to read the Word of God. We are to study the Word of God alone or with others. Uh, We are to digest material that helps us understand the Bible and to live out its truths. These are all ways that we can take in the Word of God. But one meal, once a week, is not sufficient. We need to live sensibly. And that happens as we let the Word of Christ richly dwell in us, as it says in Colossians 3.16. Now Paul also says here that we are to live righteously. Uh, This is really living out that sensible mind. With a renewed understanding of what is the right way to live, we cultivate habits of living and personal character that reflect God and His design for life, especially as we relate with one another. Now, we know how the world lives and relates to others. We see it in the workplace. You see it at school. You read about it in the lifestyle section of the media. We see the conflict and betrayal and fighting and murder and divorce and immorality and abuse and all kinds of sin committed between people. Our lives should be so distinct that the world can't comprehend us. Listen to 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Sometimes unbelievers are shocked when a faithful Christian doesn't engage in the same behavior, and they mock them for it. Other times, people see your light, and they're amazed, and they wish they could live the way you live, but they can't because they're enslaved. I remember all the way back to seventh grade, I was walking to my paper route uh, on the same path as another kid in the school who more acquaintances, and when we were a bit away from the school, he offered me a cigarette, 12 years old. I I was shocked. I'm just you know, grew up in the church and was never exposed to that kind of thing. And I just, uh, you know, I don't smoke. <laughs> and I remember he said, oh, that's cool. And the way he said it, I interpreted it in my mind as, he's not just saying, oh yeah, that's cool, whatever. But man, I wish I didn't smoke either. Today, if you tell an unbeliever, if you're a single person and you tell an unbeliever that you're waiting until marriage to have sex, they'll look at you cross-eyed. Like, why would you do that? It's the same thing. It's on the same level to, to the world as if you were to say, yeah, I'm waiting until marriage to eat chocolate. Like, it's the same thing to them. To practice abstinence to the world is like waiting 
Oh, I already said that. <laughs> Waiting until marriage to have chocolate. Immorality is so natural to unbelievers, it is inhumane not to practice it. But sometimes the Lord works through your example to bring conviction and a desire to escape their enslavement to sin that has only brought them pain and sorrow. So we are to live sensibly, righteously, and finally we are to live godly. It's hard to make a clear distinction between righteously and godly, very similar terms, but some have observed that perhaps what Paul is doing here in these three terms is reflecting how we are to live in terms of our personal character and our personal thinking, uh, how we are to live in terms of our relationships with others, and how we are to live in terms of our relationship with God. The words themselves don't don't distinguish in that way, but those are helpful categories to think through. We are to live godly, which is to say that we are to live in a right relationship with God. We are to be, as Romans 12 says, living sacrifices of daily worship of Him. In all that we do, whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we are to glorify God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. We are to praise God and thank God and live for God and confess our sins to God and receive forgiveness from God. We are to live every day quorum Deo, before the face of God. We are to remember that God dwells inside of us and God is ever present with us. And so we can never act as if God isn't there, as if God isn't watching, as if God doesn't know. We can pray without ceasing. We can bring our requests and supplications and our laments to our Heavenly Father. We can ask for His help and seek His will and orient our lives around His purposes. We are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Notice what Paul says next. In the present age. In the present age. Why does Paul say that? Is that because in the age to come we won't have to do this and we can live as ungodly as we want? Well, of course not. He's saying that to remind us that in the next age, not only will we be free from the penalty of sin as we are now, and not only will we be free from the power of sin as we are now, but the day will come in the next age when we will be free from the presence of sin. When we see Him, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is, 1 John 3. We, will only, we only have to renounce sin in this age, in this life, because the day will come when there will be no more sin to renounce. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, how we long for that day when the battle that's already been won by Christ will finally be over. And there will be no more vestiges of sin in my life, or in your life, or in this world. Instead of slogging through every day, battling the flesh, seeking forgiveness, granting forgiveness, or suffering because we or others refuse to repent, we will be able to live with freedom and joy and peace and harmony like we cannot begin to imagine. Living today in light of that future days where Paul goes next, look at verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That is the Christian hope that we will look at next time. Beloved, we're ending on a high note here, but don't let the weightiness of this text be swept away. If sin has a grip on you, take whatever steps you need to take to deny that ungodliness and worldly desire. The Lord is growing Hope Bible Church as a place of grace where we minister to one another, we walk side by side, we speak the truth in love. 
for those who want to change. We certainly have a counseling center that is available for those in and outside the church. But you probably have brothers and sisters in Christ who would be delighted to walk alongside you and minister to you. Some of you have small group leaders that you can turn to and seek their help in their prayers. And, and friends, if someone turns to you and you don't know how to help, then come to me and I'll walk with you to help you become a more effective minister of God's grace. So what is the Christian life all about? It's denying ungodliness and worldly desires and living righteously, godly, and sensibly in the present age. It's simple to say, but it takes a lifetime and the sufficient grace of God to do. Would you bow your heads? Before I pray, I just want to speak to those of you who are here and you know that you are not a believer. You know that you are enslaved to sin. You've wondered, how can you be free? And we're here to tell you that you can be free by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary death, and rose again and prove that he is Lord and God and he is worthy of your worship. If you would believe on him, if you would confess your sins to him, seek his forgiveness, trust in him and give your life over to him, he will forgive you, he will cleanse you, he will give you a new life and a new family who can walk alongside you and minister to you and help you. Do that today. Lord Jesus, we come to you as a people who are not perfect, we are far from it. We are sinners saved solely by your grace. And we need your help to renounce sin, to deny it in our lives. Lord, we confess that we too easily allow temptation to enter in. We too quickly indulge in those things that fascinate us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these words, this text, and you would work it into our souls in such a way that the next time we are confronted with temptation, that we would deny it, that we would say no, and that instead we would look to Christ and we would worship him with our life. Help us to be a people who see one another and are gracious toward each other and minister to each other so that we would grow together collectively into the fullness of the stature of Christ. For the sake of Christ, I pray these things. Amen.